Amen. Thank you, praise team. See, most people still have their coats on. <laughs> it's a little on the chilly side. You know, if we all sat towards the middle, we'd have a lot of body heat, and that would actually probably keep us warmer, but I won't force anyone to do anything that they're not comfortable with, but excited to continue on in our new series. We have uh, set the stage here behind us, because we want there to be a, a sense of celebration about not just the new year, but really using that as an opportunity to talk about being renewed. Because this idea of God renewing us as His people is all over Scripture. It's all over the Bible. And uh, last week we talked, we started the series talking about a new day, uh, going forwards and not backwards, uh, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what is ahead. I press on to the upward call of God. Uh, today we're going to talk about something similar, but a new you, a new me, that in Christ, God makes us something new. He makes us something different than we once were. You know, it's a big question for people. Is change really possible? And many people would say, no, change is really not possible. Uh, We are determined by our DNA. We are determined by our genetics. We get what we have, are from our parents and from our, great parent, our grandparents and our great-grandparents and so on. It sort of determines our future and real change is not possible. And others might even argue that it's our environment that shapes who we are. That uh, whatever, very, very few people, if any, escape their environmental, their upbringing, and that basically determines what kind of person you are going to be. Change is not really possible. But I would say for the Christian... Real change is not only possible, it is inevitable. That when we are spiritually changed by Jesus, when we are reborn by the Holy Spirit, we will change. It's not even a question of of might, we will begin to change. I'll just say from my own experience, I think it is true, people typically don't change that much. Uh, when you, most people I know, they are pretty much the same. They're, they're from, from childhood to adolescence to young adulthood and so forth. They're basically very similar. Personalities are very similar. Their sense of right and wrong is very similar. With the one exception, <laughs> with the one exception of those who come to know Jesus. People I see get radically changed when they come to know Christ as their Savior. They can be a so seemingly totally different person than the one that they once were. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. And the book of Galatians, if you're not familiar with it, is really all about how we are saved not by our own works. We're saved not by by ceremony. We're not saved by obedience to the law. Not meaning the laws of the land, but the law of God as revealed in Scripture, the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor, through faith. In Jesus, that's the way that we are saved. Well, here on the back end of Galatians, chapter 5, that we're going to be looking at, he's describing what this new life, for those who do follow Jesus, looks like. What does it mean to live a new life? What is the picture of a new life? Galatians 5, 16 to 26. We're called to walk in the new life of the Holy Spirit. To walk in the new life of the Holy Spirit. 5, 16 to verse 26. And it should be in your bulletin. Uh, as well as in the pews as well there. But we we read here, chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, Apostle Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. It's an outline in your bulletin, but the calling here is to walk in the new life of the Holy Spirit. Three points. First, walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, 16 to 18, and looking at those last two verses. 25 to 26, then we're going to look at 19 to 21, leave behind the the fruitless ways of the flesh, and then verses 22 through 24, see and pursue the fruitful ways of the Holy Spirit. So first, this idea of walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, look at verse 16, he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. New life comes by the Spirit's work in our life. Now, what does he mean by the Spirit? You'll notice in your Bibles that Spirit is capitalized, so he's not talking about our spirit. He is talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of God, the third person of the Trinity. Uh, so he's not a force. He's not a thing. He's not an it. Sometimes you'll hear people say, Lord, we pray for the Spirit. We pray that it would be at work in us. That's bad theology. We pray that He is at work in us. The Holy Spirit is God with us. And the calling here, verse 16, is to walk in the Spirit. Verse, and then again, verse 25 So towards the end, he sort of begins by calling to walk in the Spirit. And then he ends, verse 25, by a calling to keep in step with the Spirit. You can see that image, friend, of of someone learning to to keep up with an older person. Like a little kid learning to walk and trying to keep up with his or her parents. It's interesting that people take a while uh, to learn how to walk. Uh, An average calf, you know, a cow, a baby cow, takes about, who would you guess? 30 minutes to learn how to walk. It's about 30 minutes after it's born. The average human being takes about, and you, all your parents know, about one year <laughs> to learn how to walk. What a difference. 30 minutes to one year. But people take a little while. They, kids need to, to watch their parents, be helped by their parents, be led by their parents, and over time, they learn to keep in step with their mother or their father. And funny enough, parents, we love to... We want to rush our kids to walk, you know, we want to learn how to walk as fast as we can. And then they start walking and they're all over the place and we wish we didn't rush them so much, right? Because you've got to chase them all over the place. I remember that's certainly true of my own kids. But here's the command, friends. There's actually a command here to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit and what He's doing in your life and transforming you. Now, in one sense, there's nothing we can do. It's the Holy Spirit's work in us. 
as he calls it, the fruit of the Spirit. It's what God is beginning to produce in us. We're going to look more at that in a little bit. But in another sense, there is a command here. And the command is to walk with God. Keep up with Him and what He's doing in your life. And then you'll see the work of God in your life. Verse 17, he talks about the contrast of what the flesh wants and what the Spirit wants. Now the flesh here is a reference to our old, fallen, sinful human nature. It's what we're all made out of. We all have this fallen, sinful nature that's ultimately in rebellion against God. And what the flesh wants and what God wants are in opposition to one another. The desires of the flesh, desires of our, our fallen, rebellious, sinful nature are against the Spirit and what God wants to do in us. The desires of the Spirit against the flesh, they are opposed to one another. They keep you from doing what you want. So the flesh is constantly keeping us from doing what God wants to do in our lives. And the Spirit is then overcoming what the flesh wants and doing what God is trying to do in our lives. The battle is an opposition between the two. And friends, the assumption here, of course, is that we are spiritual creatures. That we're more than merely flesh and blood. We're more than creatures of mere instinct. Animals made merely of chemicals that act in a certain way at a certain, certain temperature. We're more than just a collection of atoms. It's something deeper. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, said about mankind, his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That's it. We're just a collection of atoms. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. What a very different picture that is from what we see in the scriptures in which we are not only spiritual creatures, but eternal creatures. And that what we do with our lives matters and has lasting impact, not only in this life, but in eternity. Our actions come out of our will. So, try to follow me, it's a little bit theologically deep here, but what we do comes out of what we will, what, we, what our will desires. Our will comes out of our nature. You desire whatever your nature is. As a human being, you desire to do what your nature tells you to do. Our actions come out of our will. Our will comes out of our nature. But in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we have a new nature. We are born again. We are regenerated. We're something different than we once were. And with a new nature comes a new will, new desires. And with new desires comes different actions. God renews us. His Spirit makes us something different. He's the one who does the conviction. He's the one who leads us. We follow in His steps. Friends, we want, as a church, to be a Spirit-led people. <laughs> a Spirit-led church. The only way we have a Spirit-led church is to have Spirit-led individuals who make up that church. How do we know what the Spirit wants for our lives? He speaks to us. He speaks to us how? Through the Word, first and foremost. God would never ask you to do anything in contrast to what the Scriptures teach us. This is His book. This is His Word. He always speaks in line with the truth of the Word. He speaks to us in our conscience. As the old theologians would call it the quickening of the conscience, making alive of your conscience, sensitizing you to what is good, what is right, and convicting you of what is wrong, what is against the Lord's will. The Holy Spirit is at work in the community, speaks to us in the church by the preaching of the word, by good brothers and sisters speaking into our lives, by modeling good examples to us. We see the Spirit speaking to us, and He speaks to us in our lives by His providence, by the, 
the way he organizes all the events in our lives. He's constantly speaking to us, shaping us. God is with us. He's the one who does the work of regeneration. That's to give us new life. He's the one who does the work of sanctifying us, making us holy, changing us into the image of Christ. He's the one who does the work of conviction of sin. He's the one who does the work of comfort in our grief, in our pain, in our difficulties, in our hardships. He's the one who leads us in life to the direction that he would want for us. He's the one who protects us spiritually. He's the one who gifts us with different spiritual gifts and equips us to do the work of ministry. God's Spirit is mightily at work in His people. And that's why we pray. What are you doing when you pray? You're ultimately saying, God, I can't do this. I've come to the limits of my abilities as a human being, and now I need you to step in. It's beyond me. That's ultimately what you're saying. Uh, it's certainly true in preaching, by the way. Uh, God's Spirit is at work. I have people come up to me all the time and say, Rick, you know, what you said there just hit right in my, hit, hit something right in my life that's been going on. And I would say, that's beyond me. I had no idea what was going on. In fact, I, I mentioned this uh, a little bit last week, uh, actually not in the sermon, but afterwards, that uh, the worse I think the sermon is, the better God tends to use it. Right? Isn't that funny? So if I think, I'm up here and I think, that was just sermon was terrible, Rick. I don't even know. I mean, I should just quit being a preacher altogether. Afterwards, someone will come up to me almost inevitably and say, God used that in a mighty way in my life. <laughs> it's as if he's God reminding us that he's the one at work. Just one, one major example. I think it was five years ago. I preached a sermon on Hosea uh, about God's unconditional love for his people. You know, anyone that knows the story of Hosea, Hosea is called to marry an unfaithful wife. She leaves him for another man, and, and God calls Hosea to go back to his wife and bring her back and forgive her and continue on. And it's a picture of God's unconditional love for us. And I preached the sermon, and I don't know why, but I thought it was terrible. About, about halfway through the sermon, I almost stopped the sermon and apologized to you guys all and said, guys, this sermon is terrible. <laughs> but I decided to just continue to the end of the sermon anyway, and I just felt horrible about it. Right afterwards, a member of our church said, Rick, that, that sermon is very special. Put that in your back pocket and save it. And pull it out every once in a while. Because your people need to hear that. This is God reminding us that he's the one at work. Friends, if, if God's spirit is not working in his church, then there's nothing we can do. <laughs> we can't bring anyone to faith in Christ. We can't help anyone grow in Christ. We can't comfort anyone spiritually. You can't convict anyone of sin. There's nothing we can do. We're left completely impotent. Powerless without his work. That's why he says here, keep in step with the Spirit. God is at work. Take courage in that and then keep up with him as he's at work in your life. Verses 19 to 21, he gives us a picture of uh, two things. One, the fruitless ways of the flesh and what that looks like. And then secondly, the fruitful ways of the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in our lives. But first, leave behind the fruitless ways of the flesh. 19 to 21. And he says here, uh, I have a picture actually in the next, coming up here in a second. So this is a, just so you know, this is a uh, sculpture by a guy named Dean Kermit Allison. It's called Born Again uh, from 1998. And the idea is him leaving behind the old self and the old man as God does something new in, in us. But he gives us a list and he says here that uh, the works of the flesh are evident. Uh, they're obvious. They're clear. There's no big secret about this list, as, as we'll hear it here in a second. Uh, we have an innate sense of morality. Uh, even if you don't even believe in God, usually you could look at this list and say, yeah, I'd agree, this is not a good list. This is a list of not good things, but bad things, evil things. 
uh, right here in front of us. The works of the flesh are evident, but nevertheless, he decides to give us this list just so we can see it. This is what the old you, the old me, looked like. And he gives us a list of sins or vices, works of the flesh. Um, by the way, in the, in the, early, in the uh, ancient uh, world, it was very common to give a list of vices like this. Uh, this is not meant to be a, a comprehensive list. He's not saying this is all the sins that there are, and that's it. He's saying, here's a, an example. Let me give you a sense of what the old you was like. And uh, he lists this, all this list of sins, and most uh, commentaries see a, uh, four categories sort of arising out of the list. The first three are sexual sins, uh, sexual immorality, the word porneia, from which we get the English word pornography, uh, porne, pornos in, in graphe, written uh, sexual sin is the idea. Uh, sexual immorality is a broad term, can include almost anything, but then he uses impurity. So you see it's sort of a lesser degree of intensity, and then sensuality, three types of sexual sin, three, in a sense, degrees of intensity of sexual sin. Then uh, he gives two that have to do with worship, idolatry, and sorcery. Uh, again, a difference in t- of intensity there. Uh, then eight that have to do with conflict, uh, interpersonal sins with one another, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, of rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. You can see that, sort of the way we treat uh, each other. And then the last two have to do sort of with a lack of self-control, drunkenness, and orgies. Again, different levels of intensity. He ends with these sobering words, ends a section with these sobering words. I warn you that those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And his point being, this is evidence of a life that has not been transformed This is evidence of someone who doesn't have a new nature in Jesus. And that new nature hasn't changed that will and that will hasn't changed their actions yet. This is the evidence of a fallen, sinful nature that does not know Christ. It's a life of sin. I mean, let's look at these four categories a little closer here. Sexual sin. God's plan and scripture is pretty clear. One man, one woman for life. That's his picture. Yeah, people want, always want to ask the question, is this a sin? Is that a sin? Or, you know, what, what specifically is a sin? The scripture is really more interested in the positive side. Let me tell you what God's plan is, and anything outside of that is a sin. His plan, one man, one woman, for life. Without God, why not, why not sexual sin? When you think about it, right? Uh, the early uh, Greek world and the Roman uh, Empire as well was, were well known for sexual sin. They were pushing the boundaries of sexual sin. One commentator said this, I thought it was so helpful, he said, The sexual life of the Greco-Roman world in New Testament times was a lawless chaos. Paul lived in a world in which such sin was rampant. Listen to this, in that world, Christianity brought men an almost miraculous power to live in purity. The only time you saw sexual purity in the ancient world was really from the Christian church. The men and women who followed Christ. The two that have to do with worship here. Idolatry uh, is, of course, to worship anything besides God. Uh, So whether that's a little statue. And by the way, we sometimes want to say, you know, before they used to worship statues. Actually, much of the world still worships statues. Uh, As many of you know, I've been to Nepal um, a couple of times. And in Nepal, it's very common for people to have little statues, which, which are part of their worship. I remember we had uh, two ladies, two young ladies came to faith in Christ. 
uh, on, a, on a worship service. And I asked, well, what would happen next? And they said, well, the pastor will then begin to disciple these two young ladies. And one of the things he'll do is meet with them and tell them they need to now remove all idols from their house. They're not adding Jesus as one more God. All idols need to be removed so they recognize they worship one and only one God. But idolatry in its broadest sense, of course, and we talk about this all the time, is it doesn't have to be a little statue that you bow down to. It's anything you put in the place of God. Whether that's a car, or a spouse, or a home, or whatever it may be. And then we have sorcery. And most of you guys will say, well, that's not a particular temptation for me to be involved in sorcery. But again, you see different extremities, extremes, when it comes to the intensity of sin. The Greek word there is pharmakeia, from which we get the English word pharmacy. Uh, and nothing's wrong with pharmacies, don't get me wrong. But the idea was much of the ancient worship was drug-induced. Uh, pharmacy means drugs, in a sense. So much of the sorcery was drug-induced worship. And then, eight sins he mentions have to do with conflict. That should be eye-opening for us. That's the most out of the four categories have to do with the way we treat one another. Jealousy and envy and fits of rage and so forth. That sin doesn't unify us. Sin breaks us apart. That's what it does. I like uh, For those who are Tolkien fans and Lord of the Rings, you notice that the, the evil isn't very united. You know, good can unite with one another, but evil can't. So you got the, the dark Lord Sauron. What does he have to do? He has to always fear that somebody is going to trying to undermine him. That Saruman is really trying to steal his power. He has to use might and power to keep everybody obedient. And even still, it doesn't work because they're constantly killing one another and fighting one another. It's exactly what happens, friends. Sin does not unite with one another, at least not permanently. You think about somebody who tries to build a church based on a church split. What happens? You have a bunch of people who are very divisive. They decide to leave a church and start a church. What's going to happen? <laughs> Almost inevitably, it falls apart because it's built already on the very idea of division. Last two, lack of self-control. Uh, first is drunkenness. Uh, I know that we're a Southern Baptist uh, church here as well as American Baptist, but I would say uh, drinking itself is never condemned in Scripture. Jesus himself drunk wine, <laughs> unquestionably. But drunkenness is constantly condemned in Scripture. And the extreme of that is orgies, which also has a sexual nature. So you see the full circle of the list. He begins with sexual sin. He goes through all these categories. And by the end, you've gone full circle because sin always plays into sin, doesn't it? Friends, I think it's wise at times for us to consider these. Why? To consider what you left behind. Now, some of you guys are saying, well, I still struggle with some of these. Yes, it's still part of our life, but hopefully less and less so. Uh, trust me, I'm well aware <laughs> that these sins are still part of our life today. Uh, not today, this, this week in particular was a constant uh, test to me of patience in a number of different areas. And my lack of patience, that is, my failure number of just example, a number of different uh, things came up this week to test my patience and I continued to fail at it. Like the heat not working on a Sunday morning, for example. <laughs> One among many things. But friends, this is no longer the full characterization of our lives if you're in Christ. Philip Graham Ryken is a theologian. He said, Paul is not talking about Christians who from time to time commit one of these sins against their better judgment. 
all the while knowing that they are grieving the Holy Spirit and wishing they could stop. Rather, he is talking about people whose lives are dominated by sin, who are committed heart and soul to immorality, idolatry, sorcery, and envy. Friends, some of you guys I know I've talked to have come to Christ at a much later age, and you say, this is much of your life, this characterized much of your life without Christ, and, and I've heard people say, well, at least I can be used as a bad example, <laughs> right? Well, friends, all of us could say that. Look at what you once were. And let that be a reminder to you of what you no longer are. And if you came to Christ at a very young age and many of these sins you were protected from, let it be a reminder to you of what you would have been without a Savior who transformed you. Friends, I, I sometimes consider, where would I be without Christ? Would I you know, kind of think through my mind, what direction would my life have gone if I'd never decided to follow Christ as Savior? And this, to the best of my ability, this is how I think it would have went. I think I would have started with, I'm a kind of an introspective person, so these are, but I would have started with hedonism. Just get all the pleasure you can out of life, quickly and fast. And I think that would have led to cynicism. This idea that a critical nature of life, that it's not worth it, bitterness towards this world, and I think that cynicism would have eventually led to despair and maybe eventually a nihilistic view of that there's no meaning to this life whatsoever. I think that's the direction my life would have went if I had not come to meet Jesus. Friends, let this, yes, these, these sins are an old pest, and they don't go away. <laughs> but let it be a reminder to us of what we would be without Him. And then see and pursue the fruitful ways of the Holy Spirit. 22 and 24. He turns, he sort of turns to the flip side now. <laughs> what, is the, what are the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And I love that it's compared to the works of the flesh, the works that come out of our old, our old fallen, sinful nature, compared to the fruit of the Spirit, not what comes out of us, but ultimately comes out of God, what God is doing in our life. Anyone know what kind of fruit that is, by the way? I'd be surprised if somebody could guess. It's a fruit called longin. Longin. I never heard of longin before, but I found it. I thought it would look pretty cool, so we threw that up there. Uh, but the, the fruit of the Spirit is what God produces in us when we walk with Him. I love fruit, friends. Fruit is good. Many of you guys, this new year, it's, it's a, uh, you're on a, trying to be on a diet this year? I'd recommend fruit. <laughs> fruit tastes good, and fruit is good for you. There's not many things in that category, right? Chocolate tastes good, but it's not good for you, right? Kale does not taste good, but it is good for you. But fruit <laughs> tastes good and is good for you, right? Fruit is it's good. It's a positive on both sides. It's delicious and it's good for us. Notice this is a shorter list than the list of sin. But again, it's not comprehensive. He's not saying this list of virtues now are the only things that we, there are. These are the only virtues. He's not saying this is the full summary. Uh, you could probably think of certain virtues that aren't on this list. I could think of one right here, a humble isn't on the list, although he touches on that in the, in the very last verse. Don't be conceited. Uh, but there's other virtues that aren't necessarily on this list. And his point isn't that uh, you sort of pick a few of these and do well at those and leave the others behind. <laughs> Actually, the fruit of the Spirit is singular, you may have noticed. 
We like to talk about the fruit as if it's all different things, you know, oranges, apples, and so forth. But notice the language, the fruit, fruit is singular, fruit of the Spirit is, not the fruit of the Spirit are, it is, it's one thing. Uh, unlike the, the works of the flesh, where you might say, I choose one, and, I mean, you're guilty of one and, and not of the others, the Christian life should be characterized by all of these. You can't say, well, I'm not very patient, but at least I'm gentle. <laughs> I'm not very joyful, but at least, at least I'm kind. No, this is the whole picture of what the Christian life should look like. And he says, against such, there is no law. These aren't produced by our own efforts at obedience. These are produced by God's work in us. We crucify the flesh. We're putting to death that old rebellious sinful nature and beginning to live in a new life. Friends, consider the beauty and the goodness and the nobility and the hope of this list compared to the other one. Just a few minutes, just a few uh, minutes on each of these here. Love. Of course, love tops the list. <laughs> He's not talking here about erotic love, the love of a, of, two, of a man and a woman, the romantic love of a man and a woman, although that may be partly characterized here. But this is agape love. This is self-sacrificial love. It's old, it used to be translated charity. What did Jesus say? What is the greatest commandment? Love. The Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's called the summary of all other virtues put together. I'm sure we're familiar from weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. If I do anything, if I give my body to the flames, if I give all I have to the poor, but I don't have love, it's useless. I have nothing. Joy. A joyless Christian, friends, should be an oxymoron. It, should, it shouldn't even exist. When you consider all that Christ has done, there should be a characterization of joy. It's interesting because joy is an emotion, and emotions come and go. But nevertheless, this, this emotion should be something that's there often for us in Christ. In fact, we're commanded to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. It's something that we're, it's a continual thing in our lives. Peace. Peace here is not just the absence of conflict. But it really has to do with this Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew scriptures talk about shalom, uh, completeness, <laughs> a wholeness to our lives. That all is right within us. Even if all hell is breaking loose outside of us, all is right within us. That's shalom. Patience, as I already said, this is my struggle. <laughs> Patience. Uh, trust in the sovereignty of God. A perseverance, even in trials. Waiting on God. And not trying to get ahead of him. Patience. Kindness. Friends, I think it's fair to say we live in a very unkind culture right now. It's not a kind world. Uh, be a kind person in the face of that. I remember I had a friend who uh, he said when he was looking for a wife, he said more than anything else what he was looking for is a woman who is kind. He said that was the most important thing for him. More than looks, more than any. I just want somebody who is kind. And he found one, by the way, a wonderful, kind wife. But what people say about you that you're a kind person. Kindness should characterize us. Goodness. I love the simplicity of that. Do what's good. Avoid what's evil. Let goodness characterize your life. I think we know goodness. We know it from when we see it. Like, uh, what is the, the Supreme Court Justice? 
Potter Stewart famously said in 1964 about obscenity, I know it when I see it, right? I know goodness when I see it. Is your, your life characterized by goodness, faithfulness, an ongoing, steady faith over time. Right, so if you want to see God work in your life, faithfulness times time. Faithfulness over long periods of time and you will see the Lord working. No doubt about it. Be faithful over a long period of time. Gentleness. Uh, gentleness is a requirement for elders and a requirement for all of us as Christians to be gentle with people. People are broken. People are hurting. People are not all spiritually mature immediately. There needs to be gentleness towards one another. And then lastly, self-control. Again, opposite of drunkenness and orgies here. Resisting temptation, a control of your temper, having an overall self-control. And doesn't this list look so appealing? God has called you and equipped you to live this way. By His Spirit empowering you. And He calls you to pursue it, to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk with Him. Friends, this is the... This is, Imagine your personality with these fruit. That's the real you. Sometimes we mess up, I think, as Christians when we say, God wants me, to be, wants me to be less like me and more like something else. That's actually not the point. Sin has corrupted you so that you are less like the real you now. And what he is doing is restoring you with your personality and yet leaving behind the old rebellious nature and seeing the you that God had created to begin with, that he had wished and wanted for you and from, it, from him to you from the beginning. Friends, imagine a church filled with this fruit. What an awesome sight that would be. With real love and joy and peace, patience and so forth. How do you get a church like that? Well, it starts with each of us. Individually, Walk in the new life of the Spirit. You can step with Him. Consider the life that you have left behind. Yes, it's there as an old past. But hopefully God is in the means of transforming you now. And pursue the life that He has for you going forward. Some of you might say, Rick, let me be honest with you. I can't do it. I can't do it. I've tried. I can't do it. I know you can't do it. Paul knows you can't do it, right here in this passage. God knows you can't do it. That's really the most important one. That's why he calls it the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Rick or the fruit of whatever your name is. I don't want to pick a name because then it seems like I'm picking on somebody. It's not your fruit. It's God's work. What is your calling then? To walk with God. And he'll begin to bring the fruit. 2017, friends, let's make this the year of the new you in Jesus and the new me in Jesus bearing lots of fruit for him pray with me our gracious father thank you so much for your word thank you so much for the promise and the encouragement of knowing that you by your Holy Spirit are with us that you have not left us to do this on our own which we would quickly fail, but you have given us your spirit to be with us, and he's at work doing the transformation. He's at work convicting and encouraging and comforting. He's at work transforming us into the image of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder 
this picture of the works of the flesh. And yes, I'm sure all those, even those who have followed Christ for many, many years, many decades, could still say that, yes, this still is still, sadly, partly characterizing my life. But we recognize it, Lord, as the old nature being removed by the grace of God as we're heading to eternity. And thank you, Lord, for a picture as well of the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, help this to be more what characterizes our lives in this new year. Love, joy, and peace. Patience, kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Mm -hmm.